Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Lee, how you going, mate? Yeah, pretty good. I'm okay. <laughs> I did say I was a little bit sick, but yeah, I'm, I'm very happy and delighted to be here. Yeah, mate. Thank you for jumping out of bed to do this recording with us and then probably jumping back off and getting that r and I did, for the record, I did give you the chance to like push this back, but um, we've already pushed it back once before. So yeah, now I'm stoked to have you on the show, mate. And um, also just kind of like introduce ASA at large to to the RAS community. But maybe just to, to kick things off, I know you like listen to the show every now and again, and uh, I want to ask you a few icebreaker questions before we learn a bit of, bit more about you and what the ASA does, and then we'll get into some companies, and then we're going to go back and forth together on those questions. It was a bit weird because I was preparing questions knowing that I was going to have to answer them as well. So I was like, what would I want to be asked? Uh, which is pretty cool. But if I was to ask you to do some icebreakers, I might start it off like this. Who do you think is the best finance presenter that you have come across? Yeah, it's a good question. And I know, I'm sure you'd love me to say Owen, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll try and think broadly. I, I, there's a few. I, I think Morgan Housel, we've heard him on, the, on multiple podcasts, read the book, Psychology of Money. His ability to tell stories to connect financial advice is brilliant. And as a writer, you're very inspiring. I think William Green, another writer, author of Richer, Wiser, Happier, and also has a podcast by the same name. His Eton, Oxford accent and elegant explanations of investing concepts are just out of this world. I love it. And the reflections, sometimes spiritual, there's sometimes psychological, you know, benefits from what he's learned from other investors, not just, you know, how to invest or how to save money, et cetera, um, go to another level. So I, I love those as well. Yeah, there's so many to choose from. They're the two that I think stand out to me. I think those are great answers, especially Morgan. I mean, yeah, wow. Okay, so the next one is you do a lot of interviewing. You've got the events that you put on. You do so much uh, to educate people and you meet with so many great investors. So I guess the question is like of those that you have met personally or interviewed, like can you name one investor off the top of your head that is like stood out to you and something that maybe you've learned from them? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to speak with Chris Mayer as a an American investor who has written a couple of books, but one maybe some of your listeners would know, which is 100 Baggers. And the thing that stood out to me is his almost sloth-like nature. No offense, Chris, if you ever hear me say that, but he is so smooth and casual. And, and, and I think, you know, there's this saying that slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And he's very considerate in the way he operates, the way he speaks, the way he thinks. And if you read a hundred baggers, it's this long-term project of his looking back over the history of companies that have gone hundred to one. So if you're, you're hundred Xing your, your return, in these companies and they're not specific to any sector. The results come out with you know, some key identifying factors across multiple industries. And it's so academic, yet he's also so casual, so iconic. It's, it's great. So you know, the takeaways I got from Chris were, well, actually, one, looking at these KPIs, you can identify companies and if you find one or two, they're completely life-changing. And the other thing was that you don't need to be obsessively 
academic or, or research-based in your investing approach, you can be pretty smooth, pretty slow, and have a framework that allows you to find maybe one of these companies and it will change your life. Just to confirm something, you said sloth-like. Is that what you said? <laughs> <laughs> Chris, uh, if you're listening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Take it up with Lou. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen uh, many kids' movies. I'm, I'm very fortunate to have two young children and I just picture the sloth from Zootopia who moves extraordinarily <laughs> slowly. Yeah, I know that one. That's probably in, that's endearing in finance. You probably say like of all industries, like this is the one where you want to be that way. Okay, final one of the icebreakers, Matt. And this is a tricky one because I wasn't sure what this would tease out. But if you could only pick one of these two things and you have to make a decision of like which would be more useful to you as an investor, one is a balance sheet of a company over five years or the profit and loss statement or the income statement over two years, which would you pick? Yeah, this choice uh, kept me up a bit last night. So I blame you for being a bit tired. I would choose, so I would choose profit and loss statement. So if you have a balance sheet over five years, uh, a company with a healthy balance sheet could do nothing for five years and keep it that way. Whereas if we we have a company that's perhaps profitable or, or at that inflection point of becoming profitable over one to two years, their balance sheet may be unhealthy, in inverted commas there for the listeners, but could be an incredible investment. <laughs> However, it depends because, I don't know, <laughs> if, if you then get a surprise surprise balance sheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the reveal and it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's got more debt than anything. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking about this. I actually went with the balance sheet and the only thing that I could think of was that it was over five years. So maybe after five years, you should see some of the retained earnings and some of the stuff flow through. Like obviously, I, I didn't. I deliberately didn't give us the cash flow statement because I think both of us would have taken that if we had the choice because it connects the two. But um, yeah, I was just thinking about that. Like, if you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, what would you take? Like five years balance sheet or two years profit and loss? Let us know on uh, social media. Lee's on social media as well. So he's on Twitter. So there'll be links in the show notes to that, mate. So maybe just a quick intro to you. It's interesting that you said. Like you just love the way Morgan Housel presents ideas and how good of a writer he is. Because for those of you that don't know, before Morgan was probably the Morgan that you know today, he was part of the Motley Fool. Both Lee and I spent time writing for the Motley Fool. And so, mate, maybe maybe just to fill myself and listeners in, tell us a little bit about you. Like, how did you come to be like the head of marketing and education at the Australian Shareholders Association? Yeah, I've got a very eclectic investing background and maybe even more of an eclectic career. I pretty much have been a professional, for lack of a better word, entrepreneur, but maybe the better phrase is a serial starter of things and uh, hmm. and then moving on once I've accomplished some goal, personal goals. So yes, before the Australian Shareholders Association, I was doing some writing and uh, analyst work with The Motley Fool. And prior to that, I was semi-retired after being a small business owner for a better part of a decade. So as in you exited that business and Yeah, I exited two businesses actually. So how old were you when you did this? I didn't know that. I didn't I knew you were had businesses, but I didn't know you were like I didn't know you exited two and all that. Yeah, that's right. So I began my first business with with my business partner uh, or previous business partner in my late 20s, which was a gym in Melbourne. So originally from Melbourne and uh, prior prior to gyms, I, I worked in sport, in strength and conditioning. So the opportunity arose to start a gym and we thought we had something pretty different to what was in the market at the time. I, I guess the stars aligned, had, had a fantastic business partner who could do things that I couldn't do and I could do things that he couldn't do. So when that kind of relationship, you can join forces great things can happen. So yeah, we started in a friend's warehouse just out in, in Richmond. We were very fortunate to have a friend and client just donate their um, business warehouse to, to get things rolling. And, and then we actually built out a 700 square meter space in South Yarra, just off Chapel Street. So from there, a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears went into building out a fantastic gym where we you know transformed lives. But not just through fitness, but um, our own business adventures as well. So, yeah, I left uh, that business after seeing great success after a few years of full operation and uh, moved up to Queensland. 
where I had an online coaching business, coaching athletes, and we started a small facility up here. And uh, I eventually exited that actually pretty quickly after moving into the new space because I got to the point where I had achieved you know, my, my goals as, as a coach, uh, looking after athletes, but I guess my business goals there too. And other interests and I guess other opportunities were sort of coming my way and I, I wanted to pursue those. So yeah, it's, it's the, the light at the end of the tunnel in small business can actually come very quickly and hit you in the face quite hard. So I jokingly say I was semi-retired, but really it was uh, figuring out what to do next and uh, invest, investing became the way. Wow, cool. That's the first time we've covered that ground, even though we chat a lot. So that's really, really great. And so now in your role at the ASA, can you tell us what you do? Like what does an average day look like for you now? Well, yes. So my role at the Australian Shareholders Association is, is to take care of one of our pillars. The, the association uh, has, is based off two key roles for the everyday investor, the everyday Australian investor. So we have our Learning Connect, which is my domain, and then we have Advocacy and Monitoring, which is, uh, I guess, a much larger department in terms of workforce. We have an incredible volunteer workforce and in-house HQ team that take care of that side. And uh, on the Learn and Connect side, my day-to-day role is to ensure we're rolling out uh, education for investors at, at all levels uh, through different mediums and then helping our community connect with one another. So we have, across the country, we have in-person meetings, monthly meetings, we have webinars, we have conferences, we have events, and we are aiming to do things better each year. So. Uh, I think a lot of analysis and then a lot of uh, grunt work in getting these things done needs to happen. And and that's what I manage. And this is like um, a point of great pride for me. I've spoken about this uh, briefly on uh, a different segment of the show. But uh, for those of you that don't know, basically the Australian Investors Podcast, i.e. this channel you're listening to and RASC as a whole, uh, basically been selected by the ASA to help Lee on that journey and help spread the message of the ASA and investor education. And to that end, we've started or we're putting in motion, we've already recorded them two courses, two investing courses that anyone can take. So those will be available in the next couple of months. So probably in March, uh, if you're listening to this, it's not too far away at all. Uh, and they'll cover value investing and investing generally. But also, Lee, maybe we should give a pretty big shout out to like the conferences and events that you guys put on that are beyond just like the member meetings and like what you're working on there, because I think like super important. I'm going to be there and I'm stoked that we can be working together on that. But maybe if, can you just give us a kind of like, what is it? How do people get involved? For sure. Well, yes, we're very thrilled to have uh, Rask as a, as a sponsor, as a key sponsor of, of the event. So it's going to be brilliant to have you and the team at our conference. So that's one Tempole event uh, coming up in May, which is our investor conference. And it's an in-person event. So if you've been going to lots of virtual events and, and doing lots of Zoom calls for the last few years, I'm sure some of you would really appreciate getting together in a room with a bunch of investors and learning and connecting with you know professionals across the industry, top ASX CEOs and chair people, uh, as well as market commentators and the like. So across two days, it's it's a symposium of investor education. We've had some brilliant uh, guest speakers in the past. Last year, we had a number of CEOs from companies like Tesserant, the cybersecurity company, Alcidian, a small cap medical company, some of your listeners have probably heard about from, mm-hmm. from Absolutely. Your, yourself. Yeah. And then fantastic panels. Like we have one panel, which is joking, well, maybe not jokingly, but it's called Grill the Chairs, where we have <laughs> well-known chair people come or, or NEDs come and, and be quite open about their leadership experience, governance, culture. And we have had our chairman, Stephen Mabb, in, interview them on stage. And it, it's, it's a very good insight into sort of those upper echelons of, of management. Uh, and then later in the year, we have actually an online event for those who can't come in person. And it's a broader spectrum of speakers than what we can get at the conference. Obviously, in person, it's hard to have international speakers uh, come and, and connect with you know, retail shareholders in Australia. However, the online world allows us to do that. So last year we had 
speakers like Chris Mayer, who I mentioned before, and Jonathan Boyer from Boyer Value Group, uh, give incredible uh, view-on-demand sessions, as well as we had local guests coming on and doing live sessions where you can interact and ask questions. So really good opportunity to maybe ask asset managers what they're up to, economists, and actually we had some like microcap CEOs come on and talk really openly about where their businesses are going. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be part of that, the last virtual event, and um, it was heaps of fun, like just getting involved and like being part of the community, answering questions, doing all that sort of stuff. It's heaps of fun, but I can't actually wait to do it in person. I just, I think there's something, Lee, like when it comes to engaging with people and learning from other investors and hearing from CEOs, there's honestly nothing quite like looking them in the face uh, and looking other people in the face. And this is a thing, like sometimes it rubs off on you for the wrong reasons. Like sometimes you just get wooed into their marketing and their charisma. But a lot of the times it's actually really, really valuable as an investor and just hear ideas presented. Like one of the things that I'm super stoked about with the Australian Shareholders Association and RASC is that people may not know this. Like we may run uh, some of the biggest podcasts in the country, but it's still really hard to get access to people that are the top end of the ASX. So in that in that mean, like CEOs, chair people, people on the boards of directors, those types of people, to actually get time with them is incredibly difficult. So through the ASA, we're able to find these people, connect with them, uh, and bring those insights not only here through the RAS, this RAS podcast, but also through the community at large, uh, through videos and that type of stuff like we're doing right now. So I'm super excited about that. We're going to be working on a heap of different things together. If you want to find out more about tickets and how to get involved, uh, you can head to the ASA website or there will be a link in the show notes. So just go and check that out. And who knows, there may be even an offer in the mix there. If we can, if I can kind of razzle and dazzle uh, the ASA into giving us an offer, maybe I can maybe I can pull that together. So please check out the show notes because when this go live, goes live, we will know more. Mate, I thought maybe, because we're going to have Fiona on the show, hopefully in the future to talk about all company matters and and uh, to really grill into some of that, dive into some of that corporate governance and how they're grilling people and getting the most out of uh, shareholder advocacy. But maybe, uh, I thought maybe a chance for both of us to reflect on, because uh, we've both been doing this for a little while now, is how has our investing process changed over time? And maybe if you want to kick things off, like feel free to ask me follow-up questions or ask me how mine has changed. And we can just go back and forth on this. And then uh, there are a few other things, like I want to pick your brain on your favorite ASX business model, but we'll get to that in a minute. Sure, sure. That sounds good. Yeah, I mean, I, I can kick off and I think, you know, you asked me how did I get to the ASA and and uh, people were probably wondering, how's a gym guy now leading <laughs> <laughs> investor education? Well, and I said my background's eclectic. I think, you know, I've been, well, technically I've been investing for 30 years and I'm 38. So my first investment was a, a, a special situations investment in uh, crispy M&Ms that I imported from the US uh, when I went and visited family and then uh, repackaged up in smaller packs and sold on the playground in primary school. So, you know, the return on investment was enormous because my parents paid for the uh, M&Ms and I kept the, <laughs> all the money. So yeah. early on, I was very uh, good at unique <laughs> situation, arbitrage. But uh, <laughs> Jokes aside, uh, I have been investing a long time. Uh, I'm really fortunate to have had, you know, a father who, who was also just a retail shareholder and investor, and, and I recognise the importance of it in wealth creation and and teaching me that. So um, whether I liked it or not, I learned about <laughs> investing from a pretty young age, and um, and you know, was buying shares as soon as I can with not really much of thought to an analysis or anything like that it was just this fortunate mess of you know when I had money just happened to be around 2001 when um, one crisis had hit and then 2008 2009 2010 again it sort of came back into my life and I had I was working and living in Dubai at the time so plenty of savings there and it just went straight into uh, investing and then um, I exited those all my businesses just, I guess, the year before COVID. So about start of 2019, that's when I decided I was going to get much more active in my approach to investing and and, and chewed through as much education as possible. During my semi-retirement, went back to, to uni and um, did some post-grad study in finance and then yeah, started my active approach about March 
2020. So I don't know. I think I've uh, I've lucked out that every time I get more interested in in improving my investing practice, there's some sort of global crisis going on, or it's you know the other way around, the chicken and the egg. It's perhaps every time I get in, interested in improving investing, there's a world crisis. So sorry everyone if I try and take my um, investing to the next level again. <laughs> No, that's really interesting because a lot of people would run in the other direction perhaps when something like that happens, right? Like that's normally the reaction is people turn off at that time. Like we're seeing a lot of investors now turn off, which is very much like, I guess, the natural thing to do is things get uncertain. So you kind of, you leave, you fly to fight, right? And a lot of people choose to to take flight. So that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, I I, I mean, back from when I first started at the Motley Fool uh, quite a while ago now, my, if I could characterize my journey, it would be almost, and my investing process over that time is almost exactly like the humility curve would dictate. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that curve that goes kind of exponential up and then it comes straight back down the other side. And basically that's the complexity of your investing process becoming rapidly more complex because you think that there's something other people don't know. I need to add leverage or I'm pretty good at this thing. I'll make it more high risk and you keep making it more complicated. But then you realize when you reach complexity, peak complexity and things get really uncertain that you're like, hold on a second, it doesn't actually need to be this complex and it comes back down the other end. And I'm definitely well down that curve now. I think my job as an investor today, Lee, and probably your job too, but you're at the kind of other end where a lot of people are on through the ASA are more experienced. They've got a bit more life experience than some of our listeners. Like, There's actually quite a big overlap between our audience here on RASC and the ASA, like in terms of like what they're thinking and where they are in their investment journey. But a lot of our the RASC community, you know, we've got about 150,000 listeners now. A lot of them are at that point where they're still climbing up that humility curve. They're still adding more complexity unnecessarily just because they feel like they need to scratch that itch. So my job is to move them through that and get them forward to a point where they can invest for the long term sensibly. Just as a matter of like kind of a quick follow up um, on this, mate. When you say like active management, do you invest the majority of your money in like direct stocks? Is that how you've chosen to go about it? I know like I'm not fishing for ideas or advice or anything like that here, but I'm just curious. Is that what you meant by active, more actively managing your money? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd love to go back to this complexity idea too. So, uh, and I'll partly answer your question with that as well. Yes. So, to make it simple, I definitely invest in directly in individual businesses and I own one ETF uh, and one LIC and, the, and then I think about 16 or 17 uh, individual companies. And, you know, I, when I was saying, you know, I invested heavily, I guess, I think it was about mid-2009, uh, I didn't even know what ETFs were. So, and this is this is humbling because the returns are fantastic from them, but like I knew pretty much nothing about what I was doing. So, you know, I, I guess I looked at some of the, the bigger, uh, better, like as in I knew these companies and I thought they were the better companies because they were massive in Australia and just lumped in well during the middle of the GFC. So, and now I think I know a lot more about investing, but, you know, lumping in precisely <laughs> fortunately for investing returns at the at near the bottom of the GFC and then just essentially forgetting about it for a decade proves to be a really good <laughs> investment strategy <laughs> and um, and now yes I'm active but I'm trying very hard to be inactive and some super investors and, and investors you've had on your show have have said before like they they only want to find one or two good ideas per year and maybe act on them. And this whole idea of, of being slow and being smooth, I think is, is quite profound because um, you know, I guess the, the more you know and the more you do is not necessarily better. So complexity, there's no, what's the saying is um, there's no extra points in investing for, for more complexity. And uh, I think if, if you can get over that curve and bring down everything to a very simple strategy that you can do over and over and over again for a very long time, you'll get to where you want to go. What would you say is the book that's had, if I just say, what's the book that's had the most profound impact on your investing? Like, What's the first thing that pops to your head? Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green. Why is that? So I, I read 
it for the first time. So I've read it three times. <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes, it brings you back to center. Well, it brings me back to center, I think, every time I, I read it. And the author does this fantastic job of interviewing a lot of very well-known, maybe some not so well-known investors with, not just with incredible performance, but I guess with life lessons to pass on. And those have been learned. I mean, they're not profitizing. They've learned from their mistakes and and some of them very late in life. You know, Warren Buffett talks about some of the lessons that he's he's learning in reflection about his family life and whatnot. And he's he's ninety two, so they they they're trying to pass on messages how to live a, a rich and abundant life, uh, and and that comes down to aligning not just your investing, but I guess your your personal values and and your environment and and how you treat others to get to what they call. Yeah, I guess a destination analysis, like where do you want to be and how do you want to be remembered in the future? And I, I, that just speaks to me so much. So, yes, look, I, I really want to get great returns with my investing. That, of course, we we would like to be wealthier with more capital, sure. But education and passing on these messages, like you know, if I can be a proxy for some of these lessons and share them <laughs> and um, by no means some sage that's great in investing, you know, I've made more mistakes than, my, uh, than a lot of people, I'm sure. But if I can share those lessons and then help other people either avoid them or learn them faster, then, you know, I will feel better. I'll feel richer. So I, I think that's, that's where it, this book is so valuable. And, and then there's great investing lessons in there, like just superb from Charlie Munger, to Nick's sleep and just some of the stuff in there is priceless. Yeah, right. Would you say, final question on you and then we'll come to business models. Uh, would you say that having those businesses has made you a better investor in public companies? And if so, how? Hard question on the spot. Uh, yeah, no, it, in short, yes, absolutely. So prior to opening my own business, my accounting skills were zero. <laughs> <laughs> and not the XREO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, yeah, but which I did use in the end. Thank you for <laughs> teaching me accounting zero. <laughs> it, yeah, uh, so from from a business ownership perspective, it does help you identify leaders who act with that ownership mentality, and then also inversely, I you can spot the wrong incentives a mile away when you understand owning a business someone is taking if a leader is taking a salary that's egregious and and not taking care of clients and and stakeholders uh if i i I mean i can just spot it and i believe that comes from being a business owner and the way we ran our businesses was to focus on the trifecta of ensuring our employees our clients and the business all win so if you get a triple win at the trifecta there the business will has nowhere to go but up. It will definitely grow. How do you how did you do that in practice? Like how did you align the employees with the customers to get that trifecta? So I mean, I don't want to digress too much, but in fitness uh, industry, it's very hard as a personal trainer or an instructor or something to make a good living. Like it is really really hard. Not only are the are the wages you know pretty low. You get a lot of examples where you're paid by the hour, but the work that goes into that hour goes outside of your salary or your hourly rate. And the energy that goes into that as well is a lot. Like emotional, physical, mental energy poured in to coach one hour in a gym is beyond one hour. So very hard for them to make a good living. So I was on a mission to have a team of people that felt looked after by the business, felt like they could have a career, learn something, and just be able to put food on the plate without stressing too much. So through a lot of podcasts and books and, and talking to people, we sort of figured out a system uh, of pay that would reward them for their good work, but also as the business crew. Then if they feel rewarded for great work, they're going to do better work for the clients. And and all, all clients care about really at the end of the day, whether it's fitness or marketing or something else, they just want results. But those results need to be sustainable. So if you if you run a, a fitness business and you give someone results in 30 days, but then those results disappear 30 days later, 
it's not a very good return on investment from the client's perspective. Same deal with, I guess, marketing. If you want to build a marketing business and you get someone attention for 30 days, but then in 30 days later, that attention's gone. It's not a very good re- return. So we needed to have systems that helped people change their lives for the better, which <laughs> I know sounds kind of absurd when it's a gym. But if, if I honestly believe if you can have the basics taken care of in fitness, like your sleep, your nutrition, your mu- movement, and your relationships, like how you, how you have relationships with people and your workplace, like if those things are taken care of, like it's actually pretty easy to get a, then a fitness result. So those basic health lifestyle coaching pieces came across uh, and so the clients were winning. So if those two items, if they're taken care of, the business is going to win because we would be able to fill that gym with a, a lot of clients who are going to stick around. And that's what we did. And uh, there were heaps of speed bumps along the way. I, again, don't want to sound like I'm perfect or anything. It was extraordinarily stressful. <laughs> as all businesses now, right? But uh, yeah, uh, that's that's how we do it. So I know you're going to ask me what are the best, best business models I've seen and and that is part of it. All right. Well, I'll do that then. That, so that I just was really curious about that. I've, obviously, I'm just getting free advice here on a podcast. So thank you everyone for t- taking part in that with me. Um, but uh, what is the best business model you've come across? doesn't have to be on the ASX. It's just the business model as well, right? <laughs> okay. So one tongue-in-cheek, bit facetious, but I think asset managers whose business model is clipping the ticket constantly on funds under management, regardless of performance, is the greatest business model ever. Like If you can just keep earning more and more money, no matter what job you do, as long as you're bringing in more money into the company, I think that's, that's brilliant. So if you're getting away with that... Thumbs up to you, but <laughs> uh, you know I don't like it. But it's damn, it's a good model. <laughs> but uh, in all in all seriousness, I think if you have a owner operator business, so it doesn't need to be the founder still in charge, but a manager who is treating the shareholders and the stakeholders and the clients with equal importance as themselves, then you're going to you know have have good leadership. Right? So we talked about it before, if their, their salary is incentivized incorrectly with regards to the rest of the stakeholders and, and the clients themselves, that, that person's you know, just a, a short-term ca- caretaker of a name, not, not, a, not a company, not a family. And from there, I want to see a you know, really smart allocation of, of money. So you can look at Obviously, the obvious figures, if, if you're um, into this kind of analysis, like return on capital, return on assets, return on equity, you know, let's look at the debt, et cetera, et cetera. But if, if we were to just go back to the, you know, the story of the business, like what's really happening <laughs> within the business, what do what the employees think? What do the clients think? They're all winning and they're not blowing the, those winnings away on, on needless R&D or something like that, then this business is going to win for the long run. So, you know, specifically, like, what are some names that I can think of? Well, uh, a business that everyone knows is, is Berkshire Hathaway, right? Like Warren Buffett takes care of, of the owners of the businesses that they acquire. And uh, then, you know, he takes the excess capital and reinvests it so that all the shareholders within Berkshire Hathaway do better and better. So I know it's clutching at straws a little bit, but I guess that's one concept. But then there's other businesses, you know, across the whole market cap spectrum that that do this. Like locally, look at something like Nick Scarly. Like this is a multi-generational company, like a family, couple of um, generations of a family running a furniture business that has this history of, of doing really well. Like their customers like the product. I think, you know, Anthony Scarley just said recently they're handing down discounts because, you know, their, their supply costs have gone down just recently. Like other companies go, oh, great, our supply costs are down. We're going to keep prices up and, click, you know, so we get more money. But he wants to take care of, of the customer. Uh, another business that does that is like Costco, right? They just stick to this one margin and no matter how many more customers they get, they use that money to hand on more benefits to the customers, whether it's opening more stores or keeping prices low. So I really, I really like that. I love all those examples. I particularly like the Berkshire one because it's what I call anti-fragile. Like it's just a business that's very hard to break. It's almost impossible to break. Like if you just think about the portfolio of companies model, 
like enduring companies is very hard to break. And to that end, one of the businesses, which I wasn't going to mention, just because they don't really get as much of the light here in Australia, but um, it's like the rail businesses. Uh, if you go back, you know, like 100 years, rail businesses were everything. Kind of like how Facebook or maybe to a lesser extent Facebook, but like Microsoft and Google and Apple and Amazon, like the rails of the internet. If you think about it, there isn't much in the way of public utility that you can open, that you can own and it can be used an infinite number of times and basically there's no other choice. So if you think about once you lay the infrastructure for a rail and provide it's in the right spot and whatever, it's just going to be used in basically near endless amount of time and you've got maintenance, you've got OPEX and all that sort of stuff. But it's a wonderful business model because it's a repeated business model, especially in the US where it's like an interconnected rail network where it's really dependent on rail freight. And we've obviously got a lot more of like the road freight here. But uh, the businesses that I was going to call out, and people were probably like, oh, that's not very original from Owen. Like obviously the software businesses, because you've got an infinite amount of scalability, right? If you get the software right, like Oracle or something like that, you can just infinitely run that software again or near infinitely. And it's all like incremental margin. But the business, and to your facetious point earlier on, I actually like it because I think the, be- the easiest way to get rich is to use other people's money to do it. And um, the funds management model is definitely the, 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 the most lucrative of, that I've ever seen. And I would say the Pinnacle investment model that's on the ASX, Pinnacle Investment Management, their model doesn't have that raw upside, like that untapped blue sky type potential, but it tries to capture most of that while minimizing more of the downside. So what I mean is like, and you know what I mean, like with the the, the beauty of a funds management business is also its weakness because you can go up and it can just be taken away. But with the pinnacle model where you just own stakes of really good fund managers, you have like a portfolio of fund managers and you can take your time to grow and support some funds on their way up and capture as much of that economic value and then kind of soften their blow as least as the whole business together on the way down. And I think they've done that incredibly well. And yeah, I just think that's a kind of very unique model. Do I think it's like anything like Berkshire or Solpats or anything like that in terms of its anti-fragility? No, like I think it's still susceptible to the general slowdown in active management and all that sort of stuff. So, but that's my one. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Nassim Taleb talks a lot about skin in the game. And if, if you are looking for a funds manager or asset manager, there are exceptional ones out there. So I, I was just having a laugh, uh, giving the, the yeah, ones yeah, yeah. <laughs> a whack. But uh, if, you, if you find these funds managers that aren't taking two and 20, you know, they're focused on performance fees and their money is in, like their own wealth is within the fund. Um, so that you know, their their livelihoods are on the line. So if they're not performing, they're not getting paid. And then if if the performance is poor, well, they're losing their own wealth at the same time. So the incentives are there for them to do exceptionally well. And if they are doing exceptionally well, that's the only time they get paid. So I'm very happy to support these performance fee only fund managers who are who are putting their their wealth on the line. And there there are those here in Australia and overseas too. So. You know, that kind of quality manager is, is rare to find, but gee, you can learn a lot from them too. Absolutely, you can. So my next one's a bit tongue-in-cheek. I've got two more questions after this one, but the next one's a bit tongue-in-cheek, which is what's the most overrated investing book? You said you went on this kind of information binge of like different resources and whatever. What's the most overrated that you've come across? And this could be just your perspective. Like we're going to be, we'll be respectful here. Even if you think it's the worst, someone else might love it. But what did you think? Geez, that wasn't what it cracked up to be. Yeah. So th- this is exactly how this uh, story unfolded. <laughs> it's like I made the decision. I'm like, right, I'm going to learn everything about investing. So I wish there was, you know, matrix-style learning mechanism where I could just plug it straight into my brain, but there wasn't. So I was Googling madly, like, wow, what, what should I read? What should I read? Because I'd read a few you know, personal finance books and my Dad had handed me a few books, which were a bit old, <laughs> and uh, and I tried reading them. I was like, oh, no, I need something new. Anyway, I went, I Googled, 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 and um, every list started with, you've got to read The Intelligent Investor. And that is by far the most overrated book <laughs> at this time now. There's one, obviously great concepts, but it is dated, and the way it is, it is written would, it, it calls to the time when it was written. So there is 
clearly great concepts in it. So I know everyone thinks it's like the Bible of value investing, but there's probably authors now who are doing a really good job at explaining the concepts in, I guess, more colloquial language, uh, easier to understand, easier to digest. And I could not get through it. So that <laughs> led me to other books because I was like, this can't be, this can't be it. This is wrong. <laughs> uh, this can't be the best book about investing. So I think it's highly overrated. The concept of Mr. Market is obviously going to stand the test of time and it has. So that concept alone, if you, I think it's chapter eight, you learn about Mr. Market and his uh, emotional reactions and how that offers up good companies at, at an even at an on sale, if that's the number one takeaway. So now you don't need to read the book. <laughs> Go read something else. I like it. I did get through Intelligent Investor. It did take me a little while. It does frustrate me that it's at the top of everyone's list. Like when I see that, I'm like, if that's at the top of your list, I don't think you've read that many investing books because you can't, unless you're recommending, recommending that to someone who is like, I don't know. I don't even know who would be. It would have to be someone that's a very dry, like reader, in order for them to thoroughly come away from that thing. I'm just so passionate about investing right now. Even worse, still, I would say security analysis. Just can't pick it up. No. <laughs> so I've, yeah, I've still got my original copy, and I read both books. But I got to tell you, like that is. I mean, th- those books might be relevant if you're a few years into your journey, but not as the first thing in the modern era. I don't, personally, I don't think that. I think security analysis in particular is filled with so many timeless pieces of wisdom, like even around inflation or rates and, you know, those types of things. But people that still talk about things like pay two times the long, like the equity yield, as long as it's twice the long-term bond rate, it makes it a good investment. Like that type of statistical arbitrage type stuff is well and truly path. I wish it were that kind of investing that easy. There's a framework like that. So I would say, yes, read them and read Security Analysis, but don't, it's definitely not the first book. In fact, it probably wouldn't be my first 20 books, to be honest. So, and that would, that would be my one. I mean, there's so many other great books out there that you can read to break the ice and then dive deeper into certain distinctive areas. But I've got two more questions for you, Lee. Which successful investor could you, so successful is the keyword, which successful investor could you never invest like but have a lot of respect for their process? Uh, definitely Jim Simons. So, um, oh, yeah, I was, yeah, that's like, yeah, yeah. I think everyone would take Jim Simons. And, and if you don't know who he is, he has some incredible track record of um, multi decade returns at over 60% compounded. So it's just unfathomable what that would do for anyone's portfolio. But the method of, of, um, its achievement is, is is not clonable. You can't copy that. So, and the book, I think the guy who cracked Wall, the man who cracked Wall Street, is that the one? Yeah, yeah. It's really entertaining. I found that um, a very entertaining book. You know, he's, he's quite a character and and uh, not very much like Buffett or or Munger at all. So, if you, you want, a, you know, a refreshing look at how someone else has achieved incredible results, go go read that. But yeah, I would love to be algorithmically inclined uh, I'm, I'm i'm not at all i, I don't like any form of, of trading like i just i don't like the actual process of buying and selling anything i just love holding things and acquiring and just keeping it that's not to say that i haven't tried <laughs> i've tried really poorly to you know do things with momentum and and that's that I guess that learning curve when you, you start trying to be a bit more active, you look for the the system that works for you, and if you listen to the feedback uh, that it gives you, you you'll you'll come up with what does work for you very quickly, and uh, that in, in itself is a skill. So uh, yeah, Jim Simons, but yeah, there's there's plenty of others too that I, that you know I've experimented with, but you know, it keeps coming back to uh, something very simple, and that's aligned with my own psychology. The one, so this is a super successful investor who I have so much respect for, probably more respect for maybe more than any other investor that's living is uh, David Gardner from The Motley Fool and the way that he invests in just raw upside, long-term focus. The emotional wherewithal that's required to do that is just, I, I almost can't comprehend how someone can stick with that for so long, but he has and he has achieved unbelievable things. And if for those of you that aren't familiar, David is the co-founder of The Motley Fool, recently stepped down. He's like the rule breaker, the chief rule breaker, runs a podcast underneath that name. 
And there are, I think, there's six or seven uh, tenants that he follows or like criteria that he looks for. And one of those is that the company must have been called overvalued. And if you think about that, because he's, he's, he's kind of inverted logic, he's like, well, if everyone says it's overvalued, then how could it be overvalued? Because everyone says it is. So it's like kind of give you a sense of who he is and just a fantastic speaker and writer and all that sort of stuff. But I've always tried to replicate parts of his investing. Like when I read like 100 Baggers or Guerrilla Game or all of those like books, I'm always thinking, well, what I'm trying to do is what David does. So try and find these outstanding growth companies and hold on. But every time I try and do that, it become, I just kind of like freeze and at a certain point. Like I can go a lot of the way there, but then to the point of like, okay, now you do it again and again and again and again. I just can't sustain that type of kind of like look for a company, hold on, stay with it, look for another. Like it's just, it's a lot. So I try and take the parts of David Gardner's approach in that find these industry dominating or industry creating companies and try and build a position around them. But it's very hard to do again and again and again. So I think Joe Mag is probably the best expression of that who came to Australia for 10 years. He was really good at kind of isolating the parts of his strategy that made a lot of sense. But so much respect for for David and yeah, those guys have done. So, mate, I've got one final question for you, which is one that I normally ask all the guests to come on the show. I'm sure this won't be the last one we do. And hopefully next time you won't be sick and I won't feel bad for, for keeping you out of bed. But um, my question to you is, what's one thing that you believe about finance or investing that few people would agree with you on? Yeah, this is a hard-hitting question, I think. Or trying to come up with something yeah, controversial. or uh, and I, I couldn't think of anything. So what I found, what I find interesting is the dichotomy of that Everything changes while history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So what I mean by that, if you look at a, an incredible investor, someone like Howard Marks, he is always reacting. He's like an alternative style of investing, uh, Oak Tree Capital. Again, an investor I could never replicate, but he, he actually came up studying Japanese culture and university and has this uh, saying of mujo, which roughly translates to impermanence, like nothing stays the same. The world is ever changing. And yet you, he has to make decisions, or all of us do as investors, about what is likely in the future. So how do you deal with that? So it, he talks a lot about that in his writing and, and in his letters about how nothing stays the same. And yet there's a very well-known saying in investing that this time it's different it are the four most dangerous words in investing. So this dichotomy, I think they're both true at the same time. And I think within, you know, it, depending on what audience you go to, one will staunchly argue for either side. And if I was to put something up on social media and say, you know, nothing changes, everything is the same, just invest this way. That kind of binary response to the world is never going to be true. So I think you need to be able to hold ideas as both true and untrue at the same time if you're going to be a good investor or be a good active investor. And it, and at the same time, if you hold both to be true and you dollar cost average into ETFs, you, you're literally saying, you know, you're acting as if both are untrue. You're prepared for things not being the same and also being the same. So a roundabout answer to, to that question and something that I grapple with in my own mind, like it's just... Oh, how, how do I make good decisions about the future if nothing is the same and yet it will probably be very similar to what happened last decade? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess the thing that I, the kind of solace that I find is close enough is probably good enough in some respects and that if it's close to what happened in the past, I should probably be somewhere around that and I should probably expect something similar, but maybe it's not identical. Like, it, like you said, it rhymes. So I think that's really, you've kind of like just twisted my mind inside out as you're going on that journey. But for those of you that don't know Howard Mars, definitely got to start reading the memos, even if you only check in once a year with his memos and just um, see what he's thinking, um, because it's definitely that top-down view you kind of want in your life. Lee, I really do appreciate you taking the time out, particularly, um, again, you're not well, but um, if people want to find out more about the upcoming event through the ASA or to even follow you, where should they go to do that? Yes, please come visit the Australian Shareholders Association website, australianshareholders.com. Also check out the ASA social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. 
for me personally, if you want to follow me on Twitter, prepare to be disappointed because I mean, <laughs> I'm not that active at the moment. I've actually spent the last two months thinking about being active. It's a bit <laughs> like my investing. Uh, <laughs> I've been thinking about being active, but just not doing much. <laughs> but I think it's, you know, it, it, it is, and I, and this is how I am going to treat Twitter. And uh, I think this is how I treat my role at the ASA is it's a really open platform for public learning. I am no sage whatsoever. So what I'm sharing in the education area of ASA is what I find useful, what I've learned from an investor or a book or whatnot and passing that on, creating courses, creating webinars and and all our fantastic contributors are doing the same. And so that's probably what you'll see on Twitter from me maybe in the next year. (laughs) Okay, so you're going to... Yeah, maybe. We'll see if he's still thinking about it next time we check in. But in the meantime, you can go to the Australian Shareholders Association website. I'll put the link in the show notes. There will also be a link to get tickets to the upcoming conference, which I'll be at. I think uh, my co-host Drew Meredith will be there too, and maybe Jamie Nemsis. We'll all be having a bit of fun and roaming around. So um, if you can, if you're in the area and you want to hear from some CEOs and you want to hear from some investors, please get around it. Um, it's a great thing to support as well. And there's also the ASA membership. So, Lee, mate, again, thanks for taking some time to join me. Been a pleasure. Thank you, Alan. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees and 1000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.